0: Welcome to another podcast of The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias, I'd like to go back and take another look at Hank Hanegraaff's book called Resurrection. I want to cover an uncomfortable chapter. It's titled, Physical Resurrection of Unbelievers to Eternal Torment. And this, of course, is unpopular in Christian circles today. People are very uncomfortable with the idea of an eternal hell awaiting some people. And Hank Hanegraaff, I think, does a good job tackling this. Um, He starts with Matthew 25. And this is Jesus talking. And he's talking about his return. He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. And we know all of uh, that part. And the people who are standing before him say, When did we see you hungry or thirsty? He says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So that's, that's hard. It's a very uncomfortable thing to read about. And Hank starts with a question about, do you believe in the resurrection of believers? Do, do you really believe that? And he said, uh, well, then he said, you can be just as certain that unbelievers are going to be resurrected as well for their eternal life, but it's going to be eternal torment in hell. He says, hell is not a laughing matter. And he has an appendix here. In fact, I may turn to that just for a second here. He has an appendix in which, and I won't read all of them, but just some of the verses, the biblical language used to describe hell. And uh, so as an example, Matthew 3 he talks about unquenchable fire. In Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, etc., cetera, et cetera, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your, bo- your whole body to go into hell. And he, said, uh, he said it's described as darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, as a fiery furnace, a lake of burning sulfur. The torment there is described as everlasting, unquenchable, eternal, And he said just the word that's used in the New Testament is horrifying. It's Gehenna. It's a Greek word. He says it conjures up images of bones, burning bodies, birds tearing flesh off rotting corpses. He quotes Mark 9, 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So where did they come up with that word? Well, the Old Testament prophets spoke about a gorge that was southeast of Jerusalem called Geben-Hinnom at the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. And what happened there was where I, it was used for, uh, for idolatrous Israelites to offer up child sacrifices to gods. Can you imagine that? Offering up child sacrifices. We see that Second Chronicles 28 and 33, as well as Jeremiah 7 and 19. So as a result of these horrifying things, this Valley of Ben-Hinnom became known as, in a sense, kind of a dump heap place of destruction by fire in Jewish tradition. So that Greek word Gehenna is derived from that Hebrew word for the valley. He says, how awful is that? And he said, uh, it's just a symbol of actually a a worse reality. And Hank comments, uh, takes something from Dr. Sproul. He says, a breath of relief is usually heard when someone declares that hell is a symbol for separation and so I said for a person who's an unbeliever to be separated from God for eternity doesn't sound bad. In fact, the ungodly, do uh, they want to be separated from God. He said, okay, but it's the problem in hell. It's not going to be the separation from God. It's going to be the presence of God that will torment them. In hell, this is Sproul talking again, God will be present in the fullness of his divine wrath. He will be there to exercise his just punishment of the damned. They will know him as an all-consuming fire. Sproul also says that the most horrifying aspect of hell is it's eternal. I mean, think about pains that we have gone through. For the most part, we endure them. We know they're going to end, whether it's sitting in a dentist chair or having surgery or whatever it is. But in hell, there's no such hope. As Hank says there in the words of Dante, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. And of course, uh, thank goodness, he says that it makes us recoil and disbelieve and doubt. They said there are reasons that we should erase our doubt from our minds. First of all, Christ, Jesus, the creator of the cosmos, communicated hell. He said, time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. He says, some will rise to live, but he says, those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. That's John 5. Jesus spent more time talking about hell, Hank points out, than he did about heaven. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, he explicitly warned his followers about the dangers of hell a half a dozen times. So we've got it there. It's in the Olivet Discourse. He talks about people going away to eternal punishment. And in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, we know that story, don't we? There's the rich man, he had everything he wanted, and at his gate was a beggar, covered with all sorts of sores and just in horrible shape. And finally, the beggar died. But the rich man died too. And the rich man is in torment. He's in hell. And he sees Abraham far away with Lazarus there because they're in paradise. He says, Father Abraham, just send Lazarus to dip the finger, uh, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in agony. But Abraham says, well, you got all the good things in your life. And Lazarus was you know, in terrible straits. And so now he's comforted and you're in agony. There's a great chasm. And then the rich man says, well, just send Lazarus to my father's house, have brothers, warn them. And Abraham says, they have Moses, they have the prophets, let them listen to them. And uh, the rich man says, no, but if somebody from the dead to them, they will repent. But Abraham closes the book on that and says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And I think this is uh, just me throwing my comments in, but I think that is so true because people who have rejected God, who shake their fist at God, they would come up with a reason why they wouldn't buy into somebody from the dead telling them. All right, so back to Hank here. He said, the concept of choice demands that we believe in hell. If, if there's no hell, there's no choice. Without choice, heaven would not be heaven. Heaven would be hell. The righteous would inherit a counterfeit heaven. The righteous would be incarcerated in heaven against their wills. They don't want to be near God. I think about Christopher Hitchens. He compared God to a North Korean dictator. Now, I'm not, if that was true, I don't want to go to heaven. I don't want to be next to a North Korean dictator and run by him. But, I mean, do you see what's going on there? If you send the, uh, the unrighteous to heaven against their wills, that would be torture to them. Uh, Norm Geisler said this the alternative to hell is worse than hell itself. It would rob human beings of freedom and dignity by forcing them into heaven against their free choice. That would be hell. They wouldn't fit in a place where everybody else is loving and praising God. He, they would want to avoid that. He says, without choice, love would be meaningless. God isn't a cosmic rapist who forces his love on people. He's not a cosmic puppeteer jerking the strings, making us love him. God is a personification of love. And just like a parent, he will grant us the freedom of choice. Peter Kreft explained, scratch freedom and you'll find hell. Everyone wants there to be free will and nobody wants there to be a hell. But if there's one, there has to be the other. Life is a game, a drama, not a formula. And C.S. Lewis says this, if, if a game is played, it must be possible to lose the game. And so um, he quotes from Geisler again. By the way, I like this. He uses a lot of other people than just simply Hank ideas. He gives a, a geister, talks about the possibility of losing in the game of life, uh, suggesting why the game, despite that, should still be played. He said, before the Super Bowl begins, both teams know that one of them is going to lose, but they both play. And yet, uh, you know, when we go drive, we, we know that people can be killed on the road, yet we go ahead and drive. So he says, the foreknowledge of evil doesn't negate our will to permit the possibility of good. We deem it better to have played with the opportunity to win than not to have played at all. So it's better to lose in the Super Bowl than not to be able to play in it. So from God's perspective, this is geister still, it's better to love the whole world and lose some of its inhabitants than not to love them at all. Hanegraaff also says that we should note that without eternal separation, the very nature of heaven is polluted. Heaven uh, heaven would be, it'd be like a plague let loose there. So if God didn't separate the tares from the wheat, the tares would choke out the wheat. The only way that you can preserve an eternal place of good is to separate all evil from it. So how do you have an eternal heaven? You have to have an eternal hell. Then he has a section called common sense. So he said, like choice, common sense dictates that there must be a hell. I mean, just think about this. He comes up with the example of Hitler. He says, if you don't have a hell, the wrongs of Hitler's holocaust won't be righted. I mean that's that's no justice. Hitler slaughters Jews, he slaughters uh, gypsies, he slaughters homosexuals and then he just shoots himself and just a moment he's gone. No eternal consequence. He says even the ancients knew better to think something like that. The hell is necessary for God's justice to be maintained. And again he quotes Geisler There'd be no real justice if there weren't a place of punishment for demented souls of Stalin and Hitler who initiated the merciless slaughter of multi-millions. God's justice demands there's a hell. I, I would say amen to that. I think about what happened with ISIS and just other horrifying things. People appear to be getting away with it. But we know that's not the case. It's not going to be the case. So our culture is, in a sense, distinguished uh, uh or blurred, I guess you would say, blurred the distinctions between good and evil, but they've actually been obliterated. And uh, he says, we don't believe in sin or hell anymore, but this loses a belief in free will. Free will can only choose if you have two distinct objects. If all roads lead to the same place, this is Kreff talking here, if all roads lead to the same place, we can only accept and not reject. It's all one heaven. He says, that's why totalitarianism and collectivism and communism are popular today, kind of like Eastern religions. That gets rid of our responsibility. Freedom's removed. Everybody just tells us what to do. He says, we think of love as the rival of justice and forget the necessity of justice. It's true that justice without love is hardness of heart, but if you love without justice, you've got softness of head. I think that's a good point. I'd like to say that again. Justice without love is hardness of the heart. But if you have love without justice, that's softness of the head. He says also, if you just use more common sense, a God of love and justice doesn't just rub out the crowning jewels of his creation. He doesn't rub out people. He provides us the freedom to choose. That would be a terrible evil to think that God would create people with freedom of choice and then just annihilate them because of their choices. You're destroying something of value, just because it chose a life it wasn't intended to live. So, actually, this shows that God respects people. He sustains them in existence. He doesn't annihilate them. Annihilation destroys creatures of intrinsic value. God can't force his love on people and coerce them to choose him. And since he can't annihilate them because they have such great value, then the only option available is quarantine. That's what hell is. So that's J.P. Moreland talking there. Common sense also says, and this is back to Hank again, at least the conclusion that non-existence is not better than existence. It's not, it's not better. To affirm that nothing can be better than something is a category mistake. So not all existence in hell is equal. I think that's an important point here. He says, I think we're pretty sure that the torment that Hitler is going through is going to exceed a garden variety pagan. God is just. Each person will suffer exactly what he or she deserves. It may be torment, but it's not torture in hell. He said, people in hell are not howling like dogs in mind-numbing pain. There are degrees of anguish, but the endlessness of existence at least dignifies the people there. It respects their autonomy. It respects their intrinsic value as persons. And then he says toward the end of the chapter here, most importantly, when you're thinking common sense thoughts, if you don't have a hell, there's no need for a savior. There's no need for salvation. There's no need for a sacrifice. There's no need for Jesus. And then he says at the end of the chapter, uh, he's talking again uh, from different perspectives. And he's got a quote from C.S. Lewis. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it couldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it's opened. So very uncomfortable thing to talk about, but it's very necessary. Yes, God promises a wonderful life, a wonderful future for those of us who are saved. For those who are not, it's, it's a terrible future and we need to be aware of that and to talk about it, even if it's not politically correct these days. All right, so once again, this was Hank Hanegraaff's book called Resurrection. Uh, Thanks for listening.